Have you ever thought to yourself or maybe pondered, what is the greatest threat to the church of Jesus Christ? What is the greatest threat to the church of Jesus Christ? I think there are a lot of things that might come to our minds when we think of that question that we might make a catalog, a list of those items that could be potential threats to the church. And we might also begin to think, well, if those things are potential threats to the church, then how would, if those things happen, maybe impact my life? How would they affect me? After all, I am a member of the church of Jesus Christ. Well, we've come to this particular letter of 1 Timothy, the beginning of the pastoral epistles. And in the introductory comments of Paul's letter to Timothy, he could have chosen to address any number of things that would be pertinent and urgent and necessary for the church to hear. Maybe he would have talked about the necessity of the church to be a a praying church. Maybe he could have addressed the need to raise up godly leaders and elders in the church. Perhaps he could have emphasized right at the beginning of the letter the need of the church to be evangelistic and outward focused and to advance the gospel and do the great work of mission in the world. Maybe he could have brought it more inward and say, here's how you need to care for one another and love one another and do all of the one another's in Scripture. But it's fascinating that the first thing, the introduction to this letter, is not Paul addressing any one of those number of things, but it's to address the thing that could be one of the single greatest threats to the church. And he begins to instruct Timothy to guard the gospel. His priority, Paul's priority, was the purity of the message that he was entrusted with. For Paul, the greatest threat to the church was not some nefarious external entity. For Paul, the greatest threat was this insidious doctrinal rot caused by false teaching and false teachers in the church. Now, we began our series last week, and I want to encourage you, if you weren't here, to go back and listen to that as we gave a lot of introductory comments and background on these pastoral epistles, but specifically for 1 Timothy But in this series, we're looking and desiring to see how the gospel shapes and informs and impacts everything about the life of the church and how the gospel transforms us as the people of God. It's the life of the gospel in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are in the first chapter of 1 Timothy. We're going to be in verses 3 through 7. This is what we're going to be reading this morning. Hear the words of the living God. As I urged you, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart And a good conscience, sincere faith, certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. These are the words of the Lord. And we're reminded right there at the beginning that Paul had left Timothy his ministry companion in Ephesus. 
And he was left there as Paul's apostolic representative in that church. And, and Paul had charged Timothy with some important things to, to set in order in the church at Ephesus. For, for Paul, Ephesus was the hub of, of his gospel advancement strategy into all of Asia Minor. He had visited Ephesus during his first missionary journey. He had stayed there a short while. But then he visited again during his third missionary journey and spent an extended period of time, some two to three years there, teaching the church and strengthening the church at Ephesus. Now, while Paul was under house arrest in Rome, he writes a letter to the church. It's not this letter. It's actually a letter bearing the name of the church at Ephesus. It's a letter to the Ephesians, the believers at Ephesus. This church at Ephesus was deeply loved by Paul. It held a special place in his heart. And now, a few years after his house arrest, he had left Timothy, his beloved son, his true child in the faith, at Ephesus for a very important reason. In Paul's first instructions here to Timothy in this letter, he's to address, Timothy is to address those who are teaching a different doctrine. He was to charge them to cease from engaging in that activity. In essence, he was issuing a cease and desist order on those teaching these false things. Now, he doesn't name these people here. He calls them certain persons. Now, you know and I know that Timothy knew who he was talking about here, right? He may as well be like certain persons, wink, wink, right? You, you know who they are, right? Charge them, talk to them, confront them. He doesn't name them here, but, you know, later in this letter, he mentions two individuals by name. It is a terrible thing to have your name forever memorialized in Scripture for doing something evil, all right? We don't want that. Now, several years prior to Paul's imprisonment in Rome, knowing that the Spirit was, was leading him in that direction, knowing that he would be in prison and he, wouldn't, he didn't know the outcome of, of what would take place, he summons the elders of the church at Ephesus to come see him in Miletus. And he predicted here the very things that he was having Timothy address to these people in Ephesus. Look at Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 30. Paul uh, instructs the elders this way. He exhorts them. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Pay attention to what he's saying to them here, to how he's exhorting them in this passage. I mean, it is a, it is a profound passage. You read it, you can... Feel Paul's heart for the people of God, not just for these elders, but for the body of believers, knowing what was to come. And he tells them, you need to pay attention to yourselves, you need to watch yourselves, but you also pay attention to the flock of God. Watch over the flock of God, because guess what? They're not yours. They're the flock of God, whom he purchased and obtained with his own blood. And he says, here's what's going to happen. Savage wolves are going to come in, to seek to ravage the flock. But where are they going to come from? 
Are they going to come from outside, you know, just some, some strangers, some randos showing up one day to one of the gatherings of the church? No, he says they're going to come from within, from among your own selves. Men will rise up speaking twisted things, distorting the gospel, aberrations of apostolic teachings, coming in with some new fanciful revelation. To What's their goal? The goal is to draw away the disciples after themselves, to draw them away from true faith in Jesus Christ to a different teaching. See, the greatest threat to the church is not the culture. The greatest threat to the church is not some hostile government or political individuals and leaders. The greatest threat is not secular corporations or perverted Hollywood or Disney or Planned Parenthood or anyone else that we call the enemy of the church. The greatest threat to Paul here for the church are those within the church who deviate from the truth and lead the disciples away from the true gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The greatest threat are those who sprinkle in a little talk about Jesus. Sprinkle in a little bit of truth from the word and use all the Christian language, right? And, 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 and talk all of the Christian things. And, and most Christians can't discern that that teaching is actually coming from a wolf. Just because someone mentions Jesus, brothers and sisters, just because they quote some scriptures does not mean that they're preaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Do not be deceived. Truth matters. Sound doctrine matters. And Paul, right here, you can sense he's zealous for the truth to be safeguarded in the church. Isn't that what Jesus told his disciples? Right in the Sermon on the Mount, right at the end of that, he tells the disciples, hey, beware of false prophets, guys. These dudes are going to come in, and they're going to be wearing sheep's clothing, but they're not sheep. Their avatar is a sheep. But behind the screen, it's a ravenous wolf. And what are they there to do? They're there to rip the sheep apart limb from limb. Jesus warns us and his apostles warn us. All of the apostolic writers warn the church about false teaching and false teachers. It is a really big deal. It's a real big deal then. I think it's an even bigger deal now. Paul urges Timothy here. He reminds him, listen, Timothy, as I instructed you when I was ready to leave for Macedonia, I need you to stay in Ephesus. I've got important work for you to do. Timothy, I'm charging you to hold the line against false teaching in the church, to stand again and against and confront the false teachers who would come in to try to draw away the disciples of Jesus Christ. Think about that. And we talked about Timothy last week. Young, timid, sickly Timothy. Paul leaves him here, right? Giving him these orders to take a stand against those who are teaching error in the church. Now, while this letter is addressed to Timothy, we know, as we said last week, it's not just writing for Timothy's sake here. This letter is going to be read to the believers in the church. On a Sunday morning, on the Lord's Day, Timothy is going to stand up there and they say, I've got news from Paul. 
the apostle of the Lord. And this letter is going to be read there. And those certain persons, those dudes, they're going to know they're being talked about. They're going to know they're being addressed here. They're going to be confronted by Timothy, but ultimately they're being confronted by Paul, the apostle of the Lord, directly. Because Paul is under orders from Jesus Christ to address this. Now, Paul's charge is that they cease from teaching a different doctrine. Those words, different doctrine there, in the original language here, are on our compound word. Uh, and it seems to be a, a word, a phrase that Paul, that Paul actually coins, because it's not found in any other literature of this time. In the Greek, it's the word heterodidaskaleo. It's a compound word. Hetero means different or divergent. Didaskaleo has to do with teaching or acceptable teaching or standards here. So the word itself means to teach divergently, to teach other doctrine that is different from the accepted standard. And think about it, if you were given charge to maybe teach a class to middle schoolers or high schools and they hand you the curriculum and they tell you, you need to teach it exactly like this. In order to meet all of the requirements, you've got to teach everything word for word like this. And you stand up before your students and you just go on and teach your own thing. There's a standard that's to be, to be taught and if you teach the standard, the students will be at a certain place. But if you don't teach that standard, they're going to end up somewhere else. And that is the sense and the idea behind what Paul is saying here with this, this, this phrase, different doctrine. They were teaching something different from what Paul had taught the church. Something that deviated from the norm of apostolic teaching. Now, this is important. It's, it's really important because right here... In the early church, in this letter written in the middle of the first century, you can see that there is already a generally accepted body of apostolic teaching. So a lot of people say, oh, well, the church didn't figure it out for many centuries after Christ. Baloney. Right here, Paul is saying, hey, Timothy, there is a standard. There is apostolic teaching. There is truth. There is one gospel Guard that, preserve that, and those teaching something contrary to that, you need to shut their mouths. Okay? There is a standard. Because for there to be a deviation, a divergence, there has to be a standard with which it is measured against. That standard, as we said, is the gospel. The standard is the teachings of Christ. The standard is apostolic teachings. This is whom Jesus designated to go out and equip the church and build the church and plant the church and strengthen the church. It was his apostles. Now, that apostolic teaching is designated in a variety of ways in the pastoral epistles. And I have listed all of the references for you in the sermon notes online. So you can see how many times these designations are referenced in these three letters. The apostolic teaching, the gospel is called the faith. It's called the truth. It is called the sound doctrine, sound words, sound teaching. It is called the deposit or the good deposit. And notice the majority of times that definite article, the, is placed before the noun. It is not faith. It is the faith. It is not truth. It is the truth. 
It's not sound doctrine. It is the sound doctrine. He is talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this indicates that Paul is referring to a body of doctrine that was already established and by which all teaching could be tested against and all teaching could be judged against. In 1 Timothy 6, 3 and 4, he tells us again what this is. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree, listen to this, with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up in conceit and understands nothing. See that? It's the sound words, not of Paul. It is the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what the apostles taught. And in verse 11 of this chapter, Paul says that he was entrusted with this very gospel. What is Timothy to do? Timothy is to continue in that tradition, following what Paul had taught. But he's not just following what Paul had taught. He is following what our Lord Jesus Christ had taught. In 2 Timothy 1.13, Paul tells him, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Got it from Christ to Paul to Timothy, and now he is to follow in the pattern of that sound doctrine and teaching and now pass that on to others. Why do I obsess about the gospel and wanting to make sure that you know it, that you treasure it, that you have it in your heart, that you know the word of God inside and out. It's because of this. Because I'm endeavoring to follow the pattern of the sound words that trace back to our Lord Jesus Christ, passed down to his apostles, and now through successive generations of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here we stand today. We stand in this ancient stream, some 2,000 plus years of apostolic teaching passed down. And here I am passing it on to you so that you can pass it on to others. That is profound. That is sobering. We don't guess to mess with that. Because there only has been and ever will be one true gospel. Nothing else. We don't get to teach the church anything that deviates from the true gospel. I don't get to teach my own nuance and spin to it. I don't get to teach some new fanciful revelation that doesn't accord with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. You need to make sure you know the true gospel because you're not immune to gospel drift. None of us are exempt from the tendency to wander from the gospel. This is why Paul is in his letter to Galatians right at the opening, chapter 1, 6 and 7. He says, I am astonished. That's a strong word in the original language. I'm astonished. I'm blown away. It is remarkable that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ And turning to a different gospel. He says, not that there's another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Right there in the early church. Right from the beginning. Right from the get-go. There's those coming in with a different doctrine. And here are the believers just 
wandering off like the dumb sheep that they are, right? Is the perfect metaphor for, for, the, for believers. And Paul says, I'm, I'm just, it's just, I'm blown away. I, I don't understand this. How quickly you've deserted. So Timothy is to address anyone and anything that could pull people away from the gospel. These false teachers were diverging from the true gospel. You might be thinking, well, what's the nature of their teaching? Like, what was this false teaching all about, right? Because uh, Paul's saying here that they're devoting themselves to teaching myths and endless genealogies. What's that? Well, we don't really know. I mean, there were a lot of Jewish myths, uh, allegorical teachings, legendary interpretations uh, of the Old Testament and Old Testament Bible characters. You have things like the Book of Jubilees, which is kind of considered like a lesser Genesis, this apocryphal literature, which just some really bizarre made-up stories and um, elaborations of names and genealogies. Maybe it was things like that, right? Uh, certainly, there were crazy rabbinical traditions and teachings uh, that it's possible that maybe those caught a little bit of fire in the church and uh, they were being added to the gospel and people were speculating about things. Uh, certainly, because this is Asia Minor, a pagan area, it could have involved some early Gnostic tendencies. Uh, and we know from chapter 4 uh, that some were teaching some ascetic practices. They were uh, telling, forbidding people from marrying, saying they, 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 they shouldn't be getting married or that they had to abstain from certain foods in order to be holy and to be accepted by God. Paul says there in chapter 4 that they are devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And so some strong language, some funky stuff was taking place there. Crazy stuff, right? But it's hard to say with certainty what those particular myths and genealogies and teachings were. But here's the thing. It doesn't really matter what those teachings were. Anything that is promising something other than the sufficiency of Christ for salvation is false teaching. Anything that deviates at all from the true gospel is false teaching. So these individuals were concentrating on some hodgepodge of things that were antithetical to the gospel and derailing and shipwrecking the faith of many believers. But we have that today, don't we? We have no shortage of this today. Just read the comment section when someone posts something that's actually biblical in a Facebook group or on their post. Read the comments from other professing Christians. It is mind-blowing the things that Christians believe to be true that are totally contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just look and evaluate in our world today how many Christians are fascinated with the Enneagram, fascinated with Hebrew numerology in the gematria fascinated with some just weird esoteric teachings from the torah how many christians are fascinated with wanting to and ha- feeling like they have to keep the ceremonial laws and the feasts that were for the nation of israel people fixated with angels and visitations with angels and wanting to see angels The unholy obsession that many Christians, professing Christians have with redeeming New Age practices. Saying that Christians can redeem those things and actually do them. 
yoga, tarot card readings, crystals, and getting energy, divine energy from those things. These are Christians. How Christians eat up books by pagan New Age authors. Books titled The Law of Attraction, The Power of Now. And yours truly, the smiling preacher, the power of I am. And other garbage spewed out from Word of Faith Prosperity teachers. False teachings that grip the church. We were just talking about one of those at Citigroup on Friday night. The doctrine that we are actually many gods. That because we're children of God, we're like God and can do the things God says. And we have the same creative words and creative force that God has. So we can just speak Right And wealth and health can materialize out of nowhere because we are little gods. After all, that's heresy. The false canonic Christological teaching of Bill Johnson of Bethel Church that says because Jesus came as a man and all the miracles that he did was as a man, he came to model the way so that you and I can do exactly what Jesus did, all of the signs and all of the wonders, even raising the dead and even greater things than Jesus did because he did it as a man because he set aside his divinity. That is heresy. Absolute heresy. And Christians just eat it up. Not to mention they promote that garbage translation, the passage translation, which is not a translation. It's a terrible and really bad paraphrase. If you have that at your home, do me a favor, put it in the garbage can. It is garbage. It's garbage, but people like it. It sells. It appeals to the flesh. I could go on and on. The syncretism. That's a cancer in the church. How people merge. It's just like a buffet Christianity. I'm going to take a little bit from here. I'm going to take a little bit from there. I'm going to take some green beans. I'm going to take some sweet potato mash over here. I'm going to get the pot roast. Oh, and the mac and cheese. And this is how we treat matters of the faith. Thinking we can take things from other religions and somehow blend them in, mesh them in, incorporate them, syncretize them, synthesize them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't get to mess with that, brothers and sisters. We don't. We don't. And it angers me to see this. How many prophets like, oh, you know, got a new revelation from God. Zero biblical bait. I can't point you to a scripture, but God told me God didn't tell you anything. The devil told you that. Your flesh told you that. Your vain human imagination taught you that. Oh, this one prophetess, the other day I was watching a video clip how you have to unblock the portal of heaven above you so that money can rain down over you. What kind of garbage is this? And there are Christians, oh yeah, let me send you $50, $100. How dumb can we be? Pretty dumb, I guess, right? How about the legalistic practices of so many fundamentalist churches and Pentecostal churches? had all these other laws and traditions that people have to follow, burdening the people of God. J.C. Rill, in his writing, Warnings to the Churches, wrote, Since Satan cannot destroy the gospel, he has too often neutralized, he has too often neutralized its usefulness by addition, subtraction, or substitution. 
He goes on to write, inside the church, Satan, he is ever laboring to sow heresies, to propagate errors, to foster departures from the faith. If he cannot prevent the waters from the fountain of life, he tries to poison them. If he cannot destroy the remedy of the gospel, he strives to adulterate and corrupt it. Thankfully, Satan cannot destroy the church. He cannot destroy the church. Jesus is the head of his church. And Jesus said he is building his church. And Jesus said the gates of hell will never overcome or prevail against his church. So praise God for that. But that doesn't stop the enemy from doing his best. And it doesn't stop boneheaded people from chasing off into all of these different doctrines and controversies and vain things. Now, ultimately, Paul's going to tell us here that the biggest problem of these false teachers is their misuse of the law. He says they, they, they desire to be teachers of the law. Somehow they're misusing the law, and this is the moral law of God, and we're going to talk more about that next week. We're going to look at the law and the gospel and its importance for believers to understand and know. But somehow they're misusing the law by adding these extra-biblical things to God's word and to the gospel. Rules and regulations that, the, that God's people uh, had to follow, and because they're not in the word and because they weren't holding fast to the true gospel, they're kind of plunging headlong into this stuff. But Paul writes that they not only don't know what they're talking about, but that they arrogantly make confident assertions in their ignorance. There is nothing worse than when you know a person is wrong and ignorant, and they are pridefully and arrogantly, confidently asserting their stupidity. And you're just sitting there going, you don't know what you're talking about, man. And that's what Paul is saying about these particular individuals here. Arrogance and ignorance, a dangerous combination in any false teacher. So God's people must always be on the alert for false teaching by knowing the true gospel and by knowing God's word. That's how you guard the gospel. That's how you safeguard your own spiritual life. And that's how you watch out for your brothers and sisters around you. Because here's the deal. If all of us know the gospel... If all of us are confident in the true gospel, in the faith, and we know God's word, right? It doesn't wait till the next step where the elder has to deal with a wolf. He's already been dealt with out there, right? Because God's people know what's, what's what, and someone comes with some strange teaching, they're going to tell them to get lost. But God's shepherds must always also be on the lookout for wolves and be ready to shoot them on sight, which we will gladly do. In the name of Jesus. Yeah. So in order to what? Guard the gospel. To safeguard the doctrine of the church. And to protect the flock of God. So I ask you. Do you know the gospel? How well do you know the gospel? Can you articulate the gospel? And we're going to talk about that more next week. Now, let's look at preventing gospel drift. The effects of false teaching are disastrous. Paul says, first off, that false, these, this different doctrine, these false teachings promote speculations and vain discussions. What are speculations? Speculations end up producing confusion. They end up causing people to, to, to doubt their faith. It raises doubt about their faith because they're like, 
you know, there's this other thing out here too. And they're like, well, I don't remember Paul talking about that. What do you mean? Right? Promote speculation, vain discussions that lead to deception as people embrace these additional things, thinking that they're necessary for their salvation, necessary for their uh, Christian practice and their sanctification. But all speculations and controversies do is create a breeding ground for a lack of assurance in the believer. It sabotages assurance. For instance, when we look at the heresy in Galatia, right, where it was Jesus plus the law. Yes, we're saved by grace through faith, but you also need to keep the law. You got to keep the law in order to be justified, in order to continually be sanctified and eventually to be glorified. Can you imagine that? If that was true, that's how this worked. So, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I also better make sure I keep the law. Otherwise, I'm not sure if I'm there on that day. I'm not sure if I'm going to make it that day. No, that's, that's not what the gospel is. Secondly, it brings disunity in the church. Different doctrines, false teachings, false teacher bring division. Because Paul writes that those teaching a different doctrine are not promoting the stewardship from God that is by faith, the gospel. Rather, what they're doing is promoting their speculations. They're made-up teachings. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 to 6, Paul writes, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which what? Produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and look, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. That is a hot mess in the church when different teachings and and all these things are allowed to creep up and propagate in the church of Jesus Christ that never brings unity at all. It brings disunity. And God's house is not a place of disunity. It's a place of order. It's a place of unity. And to have people promoting these different uh, gospel teachings breaks the unity of the church. So Paul also warns Titus in chapter 3, 9 through 11. But avoid foolish controversies. There it is again, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped, sinful, he is self-condemned. Those are pretty harsh words, right? You see that out there. Like on social media, I'm part of a whole number of theology groups and pastors groups, and I don't even know why I torture myself with this stuff. But you see this kind of stuff, this bickering and this quarreling back and forth about theological minutia and secondary and tertiary issues and matters of the faith, and they're making them primary issues, and it is just fighting, and, and this cancel culture has, has infested even the church. It's a terrible thing. What unifies us? The thing that unifies us is our common faith. 
as taught in the true gospel. And different doctrines are destructive to the unity of the church by bringing this division and quarreling, disorder, and chaos. Now, we could sum up the consequences of the false teaching as an obstruction of faith and an obstruction of love. It's an obstruction to the faith because we're called to be stewards of the faith. We're called to promote the faith. And that faith is God's revealed plan of salvation in and through Christ alone. One that we have to respond to by faith. And false teaching fails to promote the true gospel. And it's an obstruction to the love of the church because of what it does. It results in quarreling and division. There's no love in a church that's fighting about these these false teachings and presenting this false doctrine. See, Paul writes in verse 5 that the goal, the aim of his charge, is to have them cease from teaching a different doctrine. And he says the aim is love. The aim of my charge, the target I want to hit with my charge, my orders to them, is love. Of course, he wants to keep the error in check, but he also wants love to be established in the Ephesian church instead of the contention that is being brought on by this false teaching. The the, the quarreling brought on uh, by these false teachers that they're sowing. Love, he writes there, flows from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. A love for one another in the church can only spring from that, right? A pure heart. What is a pure heart? A pure heart is one that's been regenerated by the Spirit of God, that has been touched and transformed by the Spirit and by the gospel, that has received the love of God and can now reflect that love of God towards the body of believers in the church. The heart is the command center of life. The heart is the source of mental and moral activity. So if that heart is not pure, how can true Christian love flow from it? If that heart is tainted and defiled, and I'm just seeking to get my own way because I want to present my different doctrine and teaching, I do not have love. I am sowing discord, contention, and quarreling, not love. He says flows from a good conscience as well. Good conscience uh, is one that is renewed by the Spirit of God. In fact, he says later that the person who's been renewed by the Spirit and been transformed by the gospel, has a clear conscience, free from feelings of guilt, free from self-reproach. Well, that only comes from Christ. Paul writes that the conscience of the false teachers are seared, and he says that their consciences are defiled. And it says it flows from a sincere faith. That sincere faith can only be the authentic, true gospel of our Lord. These false teachers... They were missing all of these indispensable qualities. He says they've swerved from a pure heart, swerved from a good conscience and a sincere faith. They have wandered away into silly, vain, and fruitless controversies and discussions. They have missed the point of it all. So those words, swerving and wandering, I mean, what is that implication? It means that they have not maintained the straight path, the straight course. They're no longer on the straight and narrow. They have swerved away, and that means they're heading to a different destination. They will lead believers off to a different path altogether because they veered off course. We can't afford to be careless because we can easily drift from the gospel. Why do you think there's so many faith deconstruction stories today? 
Like, it's cool, trendy, and hip to deconstruct from my faith. Let me show you all the steps I took to deconstruct. Look how amazing this was. And I just feel so great today. You know what I'm talking about. Countless supposed testimonies of that. What is that? That is swerving away from the true faith. Now, it's not immediate. It doesn't happen all at once. It's a slow process. It's a drift. Think about a, a boat who, who in the middle of the ocean sets anchor at night and everyone goes to sleep and they wake up in the morning only to discover that the anchor didn't hold. And they've been drifting and they are miles and miles off course. This is what happens to someone's life who drifts away from the true gospel of Jesus Christ. They wake up at some point and they go, where am I? Nowhere near the path that they should have been on. Undoubtedly, the gospel drift begins with believing that Jesus is not enough. I need something more. There has to be something more. There's something missing. And they go off in search of it. Hebrews 2.1 says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. That's a sobering, sobering warning to believers. You'll be susceptible to gospel drift if you don't pay careful attention, much closer attention to what you have heard. Well, what have you heard? You've heard the message, the gospel, the good news, salvation through Christ alone. What have you heard? You've heard about the unrivaled, unmatched supremacy of Jesus Christ, who is more than enough, and in him we don't need to add anything else. What have you heard that we're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? That there is no other way, that there is nothing I can add to my salvation to enhance it, to improve it, or to level it up. Don't move away from the gospel. Christ is the anchor of our souls, the writer of Hebrews says. And that will keep us from drifting. We need to hold fast to the gospel. We don't ever move away from the gospel, brothers. You don't need to add anything. You don't need to look for anything else. It frustrates me to no end when I hear Christians talk about this. I need something more than the gospel. What more do you need than the gospel? You don't ever grow beyond your need of the gospel. You can only ever grow deeper in the gospel. But if you move away or beyond it, you have drifted. Charles Hodge wrote, his 19th century Princeton theologian, the gospel is so simple that small children can understand it and so profound that studies by the wisest theologians will never exhaust its riches. You will never, ever mind the depths of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The more you gaze at it, the more you're blown away by it. The more you study, the more you learn, the more you look at Christ, you, just uh, something new, a new facet of his glory and his beauty and his majesty just, just captivates you. Don't look for extra biblical revelation. Don't look outside of the gospel. Not only don't you need it, you will drift from it. Don't get caught up in controversies. Don't get caught up in the latest fads in Christendom. And the Lord knows there's a ton of them out there. It will cause you to drift from the gospel. Keep looking to Christ. 
Keep believing the gospel. Keep guarding the gospel. And that will keep you on the straight course. Quickly, two practical tests to apply to all teaching. First is that test of faith. Does the teaching that you're listening to come from God? Well, how do you know does it come from God? Does it accord with the teachings of Christ? Does it accord with God's word? If they're like, it's not really in the Bible, but God told me, junk that thing. Like really fast. Is it in agreement with apostolic teaching and doctrine? If the apostles didn't write about it, nope, no go. No go. Does it follow the pattern of the gospel? Or does it come from, again, human imagination, right? Or some extra biblical source? It's fanciful in in some circles here among the more theologically astute saying that you really need to study a lot of these apocryphal books because it'll give you a better understanding of the Bible. No, you don't. No, you don't. No. If God hasn't revealed it in, in the Word, the canon of Scripture, you do not need it to understand God's Word. Second, the test of love. Does it promote unity in the body of Christ? Does the teaching promote unity or does it cause division? Does the teaching edify and build up the church as the Lord intended for the church to be edified and built up? This is a way you evaluate teaching or does it breed contention, quarreling, and argumentation? The ultimate criteria by which to judge any teaching then is whether or not it promotes the glory of God and the good of the church. And Paul says that the doctrine of these false teachers does neither of those things, does not glorify God, and it is not for the good of the church. So my final exhortations to you, guard the gospel. Help safeguard the doctrine of our church, the purity of the doctrine of our church, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pay attention to what you let into your ears. Pay attention to what YouTube channels of teachers and preachers and podcasts and blogs and books you read. Make sure it accords with sound doctrine. There's only one gospel. There's only one Lord. There's only one true faith. That's the gospel. And I'll close with Paul's exhortation to the believers at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to read from verse 1. I therefore... A prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. Amen.